there are there are so many times like we will get a note that's like I heard that you used the phrase beg the question incorrectly <laughs> and I just expected so much more from you. <laughs> and we're just like, what made you expect yeah. more from us? That's on <laughs> you. We've done nothing. <laughs> to earn We've done that. Nothing. This is Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. I'm Faith Saley. And this week, we're going extra, extra behind the scenes. I'm talking to some of the people who are an essential part of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, even though you never hear them on the air. These are the unsung heroes of the radio world, the producers, editors, and writers who put the show together every week. And if I'm being honest, save us panelists from ourselves on a regular basis. Mike Danforth and Ian Chillog, whom Mike rather endearingly calls Chili, are the executive and senior producers, respectively, of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Ian, you were Mike's first hire. Is that- oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, he called me as soon as he heard I had got fired from my previous job. I did. I leapt on him. Sounds like dating. <laughs> yeah, like- no, it was like a, well, like a yeah. or like a vulture. Yeah, <laughs> it, was a, it was kind of a rebound job for yeah. me. <laughs> you guys are the behind the scenes guys whose whose names super fans may recognize. But how do you feel about not getting any of the glory that the host and Bill and and the panelists get? Well, we you know we like to say things that um, you know we we like to push our takes on things as much as possible, and occasionally like I will. Um, you know, write something or we'll we'll come up with a joke together that I will insist Peter says. And then if I ask myself, would I be willing to say this to 500 people and then to, you know, millions of people uh, on a radio show and have it come out of my mouth? Absolutely not. I would never say that. And so it's like it's very secure and um, it's a real luxury to be able to put horrible things out into the world and have someone else be blamed for thinking them. If there's anything that we do that uh, causes offense, I'm the person that gets in trouble when something goes wrong on the show. For real? Yeah. How do you get in trouble? So the people at NPR, they'll call me and say, hey, we've had a lot of people complaining about this thing that happened on the show last week. Can you give me an example of when this has happened? (laughs) One good example uh, was... Um, a bluff game that we did years ago. So one of our panelists, Peter Gross, wrote his bluff, uh, and it was basically built around Polish jokes. First, let's hear from Peter Gross. The city of Gdansk, Poland, isn't just famous for having the country's sixth biggest population, an average summer temperature of 72 degrees, a large seaport, and a very easy-to-read Wikipedia page. It also boasts one of Poland's most thriving theater communities. This fall, the People's Theater of Gdansk was mounting a production of West Side Story. But on opening night, a key light on the set went out in the middle of the show. But an argument erupted over whose job it was to fix it. Strict electricians' union rules dictated that only a union electrician be allowed to work on lighting equipment. But equally strong stagehands' union laws called for a stagehand to perform any and all work on a theatrical set. So they made a deal. The electrician stood on the chair holding a light bulb while the stagehand turned the chair. The show was able to go on after it took two poles to screw in the light bulb. So we did it and people complained. And that happens every week someone complains. But the Polish consulate in Chicago also complained. And I think they maybe talked to the Chicago Tribune. 
Oh, my gosh. So then I got a call <laughs> from a reporter about it, and I talked to the reporter, and then I had to call the whoever it is, the Polish general counsel here in Illinois, in Chicago, and I talked to that person. What were you saying? I'm sorry it was a joke? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. That's usually what I say to anybody. It's like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've always wanted to know this. You guys are in the in a booth in the back of the theater. Yeah. If, if it's a show in, at the Chase Auditorium in Chicago, if it's a traveling show live on stage, you're behind us, and and yes. the whole audience can see you. Yeah. So when you guys are in a booth during the show, are you do you after doing this for almost twenty years, do you just know you hear the show as it's happening? We're going to cut that. We're going to cut that. Are you actually saying it? Oh yeah. So you're editing the show vocally. As you're hearing it. Yeah. You just know. How do you know? What 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 is the quality of a moment where you think that goes or that stays? Well, you know, I mean, a, a really big laugh is probably the easiest thing. But, you know, things, you know, things that are new, like if there's a really good conversation, if there's a really good thing that comes out of improvisation. I also think, I think Ian is very good at this. I think Ian does this. Chili, do you ever find yourself... Because I know you've been listening to this and you've been thinking about how you would edit this. Our conversation right now. Yeah. Do you, totally. Do, really <laughs> do you edit conversations that you have with people just in regular life? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes in my worst moments, I hear someone talking and I think about how they could have made what they said better yeah. by cutting out part of it. This would be half as long and twice as effective if you yes. just cut this part out. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's a curse. It is. <laughs> um, you guys are incredibly unflappable. So what has flapped you? Have you ever become frantic or anything? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, a couple things with, with our, our celebrity guests, like um, when somebody wasn't showing or somebody, uh, the, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't want to name names, but a former president of the United States wouldn't stop talking. Um, and his people were calling me, telling me that um, that I had to get the president out of the room. <laughs> it's a great um, time in the show. There was like a was like a two week period in where you were in charge of booking guests. <laughs> it was. I, you're very you're very good at it. But I'm you, really not. You hated it. it. And, I do. And this was happening. Ian's directing the show, so he's in front of the mic. He's the guy in charge of talking to the panelists, telling everybody what to do. I'm just sitting next to him, taking notes, maybe playing a game on my phone. <laughs> and his phone is he's constantly getting emails from uh, Bill Clinton's people saying he has to go. Like literally, they said the plane is waiting. <laughs> Carl, how did President Clinton do in our quiz? President Clinton wins again, Peter. Oh, my God. Three correct answers. So the president wins for Dave Parks. Mr. Mr. President, I, I, I am being told that your, your staff is threatening our lives unless we let you go. So um, I'm, I'm going to, I much, I would Let my, me ask you one thing. Oh, please. Go. <laughs> our deaths will be in your hand. I threaten my life now. I've had a wonderful time and I thank you all. I, I want to ask you one thing. Seriously. Were you talking into Peter's ear saying we have to wrap yeah. this up? Yeah. He, and he was really trying, but like, like, Mr. President, thank you so much. And Bill Clinton would be like, well, thank thank you, and and speaking of gratitude, I'd like to talk about. Go and do what Willie Sutton did. Go to the banks because that's where the money is, and see if we can't get things going in America again. We will. T thank you, sir. We will. You have my promise that we will regularly tell our listeners that President Bill Clinton told them to go to the banks and take their money. 
No, go to the bank and borrow money and create jobs with it. <laughs> or that. Well, I'm, the I'm, bank, I'm, that's the last thing we need to do. I'm, 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 sure, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get it mostly right. <laughs> President, President Bill Clinton is hosting... Bless you guys. Take care. Thank you very much. He's hosting the Clinton Global Initiative. Thank you so much, President Clinton, for being on Wait, Wait, Tell, Tell Me. Goodbye, Bye-bye. sir. Thank you. It's so funny. I'm getting, I'm getting these notes from my producer going, we really got it. We got it. We have to end this because we're getting messages from his staff. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? Talk to him. Sorry to cut you off, Mr. President, but we got it. We got a yeah. show to do. Honestly, I, um, okay. Switching gears. Um, you know, everybody involved with the show has to bring, has to, you know, handle real life stuff in the course of bringing comedy to the masses every week. So how do you, how do you think you create an environment where people can be real humans and still bring their brilliance and humor to work? Um, I mean, I, you guys are really yeah. a family. I think we are. And I think that's, that's a, uh, it feels very trite to say that. But it is, I think it's true. Like, we spend so much time together. Bickering. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and the, 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 truth, the truth is, like, in order for this show to be successful or to be made, you need people to feel comfortable. Like, in the creation of the show, what you need is you need to create an environment where, where people feel comfortable, where they trust that it's safe enough to make a dumb joke. Like, we're just going to throw stuff out there, and some of it's going to work, and a lot of it's not. So I think one of the things that maybe happens if, it's, um, if you're having a bad day in your outside life, you can come here where your job is to joke, is to have fun and to laugh. And that's one of the things that we've talked about in, in, in the past is, like, this is a job where I know I'm going to come to work every day, and I'm going to laugh. <laughs> Of course, Wait Wait can't just be funny, it's also got to sound really good. And that's the job of Lorna White and Robert Newhouse, the technical director and production coordinator who have been with the show since the very beginning. We've been here for the entire 20 years, so uh, we know where a lot of the bodies are buried. And uh, that's why it's beginning to stink over there in the corner. So will you walk me through a typical week in production for you? Like, what do your days look like? I would say in my week, uh, it's it's really a tale of two jobs because Monday through Wednesday, I'm doing a lot of advance work. You know, I'm contacting venues and stations about future shows. But mostly Wednesday through Wednesday, I'm working on uh, where, where we're going. Monday through Wednesday, what did I say? Wednesday through Wednesday. Wednesday through Wednesday. You found my secret. I only come in one day a week. <laughs> So Monday through Wednesday, uh, uh, I'm doing a lot of that. And I start uh, the beginning of the week archiving the previous show. I also make sure that Peter records all the interstitial parts that he needs for podcasting. Because once I mix down the regular broadcast, I have to turn around and make it into a podcast. And sometimes there are small issues that come up. We have less than 24 hours to turn it around. So we record the show and uh, the next day have about uh, six hours to finish it up. Has there been a time where something went just completely off the rails behind the scenes and you had to fix it? The the biggest mishap that we have had was recently, was last fall. Mm-hmm. We were in Seattle 
and we had done a Thursday night show and we're in, you know, we post-produced it on Friday and got it ready for air. And then we were doing a Friday night show where it's basically the same script, but it's a different panel, different Not My Job guest. And I think we do a different bluff as well. Yeah. And so we've all been up in our hotel rooms, you know, getting the broadcast ready, all this kind of stuff. So we come in at like six o'clock at night for the second show, you know, panelists go on stage and Peter does the intro and he says, hi, you're on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And there's nothing. All right. This is, this is a last minute change, uh, but this is what we're going to do. Normally, uh, we have people who call in to play our games uh, from around the country. But apparently, just before the show began, all our phone lines failed. So we are going to do something that quite literally we have never done before. (gasps) We are going to invite one of you. (laughs) That's cool. No, you're not coming up, but you're going to stay in your seat, and we have one of our producers who's going to work the crowd and find one of you. We've got to think about four of you in the course of the show to play our games. Now that I know we're doing that... (laughs) Improvisational theater. All right, from the top. After the break, I talk with the guy who's probably got the best job on the whole show. How did this happen? How did what happen? Oh, me becoming the limerick writer. Yeah. Yeah, uh... Is there big money in this? No. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Atlassian. Today, nearly anything is possible, and if we can dream it, teams can build it. From going to Mars to decoding the human genome, Atlassian is a collaboration software company powering teams around the world. Products like Jira Software, Confluence, Trello, and Bitbucket help teams plan, track, build, and work better together. Atlassian products are free to try, easy to set up, and work seamlessly together. Get started today at Atlassian.com. Welcome back to Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. I'm Faith Saley. Wait, Wait is unusual in a lot of ways, but maybe the best thing about it is the fact that, to my knowledge, it's the only radio show with a dedicated in-house poet. Philip Goodica is the guy responsible for writing all the limericks we use on air every week. And naturally, when I talked to him, I was dying to know, how the heck do you get that job? I was in grad school. My wife was pregnant with our first child when I started listening to the show. Because, you know, I used to be a TV watcher, then our TV broke during the pregnancy. And because, you know, as a good parent, first-time parent, I'm like, no more TV, no TV in our life. We're just going to do books sure. and radio. And then I got hooked on this show. And then so my fast forward, my daughter's about six months old. They announced that their limerick writer is quitting. And I'm like, I can do this. How do I how do I do this? So I just sent in three limericks a day and I auditioned and I got it. Wait, were you in grad school for poetry? No, for music, music history. So indirectly, I was doing poetry because I was thinking of doing German cabaret music of the early 20th century, writing about that. Bill Coleman. Exactly. And uh, so I was, you know reading more poems, but I'd never written a limerick before. They were just kind of easy. So this makes sense. You were, I mean, even if you're studying music history, implicitly musical. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, yeah, rhythm. Yeah. It's rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I, when I, the first weeks, I was, you know, six-month-old daughter. I can't just always work. So I was, the stroller, the sidewalk cracks in Chicago, they totally helped because it was like chunk, 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 
chunk, chunk, chunk, chunk, chunk, chunk. So I'd, I'd make my pace have that rhythm so I could go, Oh, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Does your daughter know that? Um, I think so. But, the, you know, there was a, also a bad crack that I made the stroller flip one time. <laughs> well, you know, we all have, you know. <laughs> it's a metaphor for a bad limerick, sure, right? Sure, yeah, exactly. It'll work. Exactly. So how does it work now? How does it work? Every does week, work? what day, you get what, and what do you do? Well, part of the reason I got the job because I was quick. Like, the turnaround is overnight. They send me oh. five, usually five, sometimes eight, sometimes it's up to ten stories. And I send back a limerick for each story by the next day. Uh, okay, so we tape on Thursday nights. So yeah. it's on Wednesday. Wednesday after their meeting, so after 4.30 their time, they send the stuff out. Uh, by the way, listeners, yeah. uh, my mouth is open. Because <laughs> uh, you're yeah. writing eight limericks in, in, in the yeah. night before. No, not the night. I write them in the morning. Wow. I just kind of, I write down the topics and sort of mull them over the night before. And then the next morning, I keep my Thursday mornings for you. My Thursday mornings are more or less holy. I mean, I, I used to write them overnight because I was stressed out about it, but I'm a little more relaxed about it now. Have you ever been utterly stumped? I can't do this one. There's no rhyme I can make for this story. No. Sometimes I balk a little when it's pizza again, because often a story gets sent out where the last word is supposed to be pizza, and there's not much you can rhyme with mm. pizza. I mean... Like, what's Adisa? It's the Hitza. I have not had a trip to Ibiza, nor been unimpressed by Mona Lisa. My Yale essay will show that I write what I know. I love slices. I'll write about... Pizza? Rice! If you want it. I will hand out degrees, like in anchovies and cheese. If I let the kids major in... Pizza. Pizza, yes! yes. <laughs> While laid up and lame, go watch your college games. I'll throw in an extra large... <laughs> no idea. Well, <laughs> great performance. I got it. It, it, it rhymes with keepsa. Sheetsa. Comes in sizes like extra large. Pizza? Pizza, yes! <laughs> Are you... A poet? Like, do, do you do you consider yourself a poet? Um, no. I Calvin Trillin has this book where he calls himself a doggerelist. I think that's what I would call myself. Like, I, I'm a rhymer. If people ask you what you do, <laughs> what do you say? My first answer is that I sponge off my wife. I'm a stay-at-home husband. My next answer is that I work at a bookstore. And then if I think that they'll be interested, I, I lead with, well, do you listen to NPR? If they say no, that's the end of it. I, I say I write for radio. I write for NPR. If they do, they invariably love the show. And then I go, well, I write for, wait, wait. And they're like, really? What do you do? I write their limericks. <gasps> Before the break, we met Mike and Ian, who are the executive and senior producer of the show. Week to week, they're assisted by producers Jennifer Mills and Miles Dornboss. As far as I can tell, their job is to produce non-executively and non-seniorally. So my story is kind of circuitous getting here, but I, I've been listening to the show since before the show had an audience. So back in the bad days, How in the dark days. young were you? Um, I was, let's see here. So we've been on for 20 years now. So I started listening to the show when I was about 13, give oh. or take. Um, we were kind of an NPR in the car family sometimes, uh, and this was one of the shows that first felt like I had ownership of because it was like weird and funny, but funny in a way that like 
that felt, I don't know, like my grandma could listen to it and feel okay about it. Huh. And actually, I think that when I first came in to interview to be an intern, which is where my career path with Wait Wait started, I blew it because I'd been listening to the show for too long and I felt too comfortable and too familiar with everyone in the room. And I forgot that just because it was a huge part of my life, it wasn't a huge part of theirs. I was a 0% part of their life. And I showed up overdressed. Uh, I was wearing a vest uh, and a suit coat uh, and was so like I got there and I was like, oh, I know Mike. Mike and I know each other because I hear his name every week. So I was like, hey, Mike, it's so good to see you. And he was like, hi. (laughs) Uh, I did also, and this is completely serious, I told them that my favorite version of Star Trek was Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Peter is an original Um. series person and Mike is a next generation person. And I feel like that also potentially cost me the job. Um, What about you, Jennifer? I heard the show a few times. (laughs) Okay, so Miles, what do you do? Well, in addition to uh, dealing with uh, our call-in contestants, Mm -hmm. I also uh, handle the Not My Job booking. Uh, I am responsible for our internship program. But that's that's essentially, those are the things that I do. And again, I I want to stress that uh, I I hope that the thing that I do primarily, because I say this as somebody who came into Wait, Wait, in an already established group. And one of the things that happens when a bunch of people are telling jokes together is like you build your own language. And I hope that like when we bring interns in, one of the things that I find most important is making sure that they have somebody to help translate that language and make them feel like they're a part of the group that we've set up together. We, if I can add to this, um, because Miles helped me do this when I was a new employee, the amount and depth of inside jokes that happens in a staff this small, it is like a single word said in a single way. For instance, we have a potato that Mike gave me for my birthday. And all day long, I microwaved this potato over and over again, and I put it on my neck because my neck hurt on my birthday. And what (laughs) happened at the end of my birthday is that the potato dried out into this like little tiny crust of a potato. And what we did was we kept that potato. We named it Tatey. We performed (laughs) a marriage ceremony between our salt shaker, Salty, and the Tatey. And uh, and now they are, like have a place amidst all of the various like junk in our office with a little sign that says just married. And Tady has taken on the character as another staff member. So Mike will be like, we should ask Tady or like, why don't you email right. Tady? And if you don't know that we created a marriage between a salt shaker and a potato because I got a potato for my birthday and I microwaved it 14 times. You do not know who Tady is and why you're supposed to email Tady. It's baffling. We uh, we created an entire beautiful wedding service for our office potato. And um, there was a moment where Mike said, Siri, play Pachelbel's Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> and Pachelbel's Cannon started to play. And we all stopped and looked at our super weird work. And there was a moment where we were like, this is beautiful. Yeah. And our potato is getting married Where it today. really transcended being just absurd and came into some sort of strange beauty. And, and then, we all stood there and listened to the whole Pachelbel's canon and just watched the still potato stand next to a salt shaker that was dressed in a homemade tuxedo. It's an open office yeah, plan. Yeah, it's a cubicle plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you guys feel about that? Everybody hears you making your comedy soup. 
I like it. I think that, like, it must be a very particular part of everyone else's day that, you know, it's like when we have our, our news meeting where we talk about the news and we make some jokes out loud. That is a part of the day that I bet people plan around yeah, that it, don't work with us. It must be a nightmare. What What's an example of real radio magic you pulled off? That we pulled off? Yeah. Or, you know, as a team, you know, just something that mm. that the audience may never know what you did to sort of kludge that together. There's one little moment of radio magic that um, that only we know about, which is that at the end of the show, you've heard this when we're done. The, the listening audience doesn't hear this, but Peter goes, ta-da, at the end. <laughs> yeah. And one day, for whatever reason, he just said, today. And he was like, I mean, ta-da. And we had it on tape. And um, Mike <laughs> took that soundbite of him saying, ta-da, and put it into We're Coming to America. To Neil Diamond's Coming to America. So we have this, like, and we play it all the time. Mike Mike will play it constantly. We're coming to America. ta We're coming to America. ta Today, 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 my country today. And we're going to end this episode where it all began with Doug Berman, who started dreaming up Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me years before the first episode aired. That was while he was making other public radio things you might have heard of, like car talk. Doug talked to me from California, where he lives full-time while working for Wait, Wait, Long Distance. And my first question for him was about where his official title came from. The reason I'm the benevolent overlord is because, um, you know, I started the show and... I mean, it started airing in 1998, but we started working on it in, like, 1995. And I, I sort of took on the role of the executive producer when we started, uh, which is kind of man- the manager of the show and the staff and all that stuff. And then um, at some point, I can't remember what year, but Mike Danforth came on and kind of worked his way up, uh, and he was so good that eventually I really wanted I wanted to promote him and I wanted to keep him. Mm. And he was a senior producer, and, and in NPR's uh, system, you can't have two executive producers for a show. So I said, well, that's fine. Make him executive producer, and you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> uh, and they said, okay, what do you want your title to be? And I said, how about Benevolent Overlord? And um, they said, sure, that's fine, I guess. And they put that in the contract. And so my contract actually says I'm the Benevolent Overlord. Tell me if you think this is a true statement. There wouldn't be a wait, wait, don't tell me without car talk. Yeah, I think probably because I'd probably be, you know, um, selling cars or something instead. You know, (laughs) so I wouldn't have been there. (laughs) I think that that Car Talk's success informed everybody at, at working in public radio that there could be comedy. The car makes a sound that kind of goes. Go, could you could you do that again? <laughs> if you don't get emotionally involved. <laughs> no, I won't. I promise, I won't. But, but I'm going to record it this time. <laughs> <laughs> when I turn the steering wheel, either either way, left or right. Left or right. You're sitting stopped. I'm. Stopped or going. Or moving. Or moving. Yeah. Okay. 
it makes this noise and it kind of goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of like you you're got, interested yeah. in selling this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before that, there was something that we referred to as humor, ah. um, which was clever. You know, it was something you might chuckle about uh, and think, well, that's clever. Um, you know, but until car talk, there weren't really a lot of belly laughs, you know, and letting it hang out. Um, and I think they opened public radio in a lot of ways to not only that, but also to a variety of voices that hadn't been heard on public radio before before car talk. Wait, wait, don't tell me. First aired in 1998. But you said that it started being gestated in 1995. What was going on for three years as you created this show? Well, you know, I, I think what happened was uh, it, it kind of happened slowly. It was just, first of all, on a slow track. There was nobody saying, you know, okay, you know, we need to create this and it needs to be out in, in three months, you know. So we were kind of noodling. Uh, but m- maybe you're familiar with this, too. And I, I, I say this in all seriousness. When, you know, I'm, I'm often credited as the creator of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yes, you are. Uh, I appreciate that. But anybody who's, you know, created something, uh, in, the, in the creative realm, knows that you kind of start with an idea, and then the real work is is actually making it happen. You know, making it real. And so we really started from scratch. I, you know, I, I had this idea there would be a panel show, so that you know we did a first iteration, which was using a lot of uh, existing NPR people, um, and we played people as teams. You know, there were two teams of two people and a host. And it didn't move fast enough. So we took that in and we said, okay, you know, let's try another direction. And so in the next iteration, we went with a guy who was uh, a comedy writer named Randy Cohen. And so we went, we went and we did a number of, um, you know, tests in New York uh, using him as a host and three panelists. And uh, that stuff was definitely funnier. And what we ended up feeling after doing that was that it, it was funny, but it lacked a little bit of substance. And, you know, what, what, what I really wanted was a balance of both, you know, where it was funny, but, you know, like car talk, it wasn't a complete waste of time. You know, you took something away from it that you could learn. And so, you know, from that second iteration, we ended up in the third iteration, which is, you know, the precursor to what we have now, where it's funny, but what we do is, you know, when we take when we take on a story, we say to ourselves, "Okay, what's our point of view on this story?" You know, what do we want to say, and then we try to be funny about that. So that took three years. <laughs> Were there other show titles that y'all tried out before you got to wait? Wait, don't tell me. I'm sure there were. Uh, I'm sure there were. This title uh, came to us when we were doing uh, testing in, in that second phase in New York. Um, we, you know, we just reached out uh, far and wide to try different panelists and things. And one of the guys we tried um, was a guy who I believe his name was Mark Katz. And Mark, if you're out there uh, listening, um, drop me a note. But he was a writer who worked for Bill Clinton. And his job was to kind of write, you know, funny lines for Bill Clinton. And during one of the one of these tryouts, he said, you know, you should call the show like, wait, wait, don't tell me. And it was like, that's it. Do you have? Oh, and please, I know, I know, you're going to tell me that it all blurs together after 20 years. It all blurs together. But after I 20 know, years. but please, yeah. just, 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 do you have? Can you think of a, a very favorite moment 
for you? Mm. Uh, was, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, it, it has to do with Peter. Um, and Peter uh, is, uh, as you know, he's a genius. He's yes. a comic genius, and he's a, a regular genius, too. He's an incredibly smart guy, and, and I love him. And, um, and, and, and the show wouldn't be what it is without Peter. And, um, you know, I, I think while, while he does this amazing comedy show, I think he also, like in his heart of hearts, wants to also wants people to know that he also is a you know a thoughtful serious person or at least he has that side you know Mm -hmm. and so it's so he's got kind of this somewhat serious side to him occasionally um and and that makes it very easy to kind of prank him and make fun of him (laughs) um and the whole staff kind of knows this you know and one time we we went to Santa Barbara to do a show, and at the time he was reluctant to travel too much because he had a young family, and it was it was difficult to be on the road. So so you know we kind of convinced him to go by saying why don't you bring your family with you you know, so uh, we ended up arranging and it wasn't his fault but he you know we uh, he ended up staying at the Four Seasons in uh, Santa Barbara. I think it was through the station they arranged it to sort of, you know, make it nicer for his family and stuff like that. And the rest of us were put up in this, you know, okay hotel downtown called the Canary, which I don't know if it's still there. Um, And so, so we just gave him a lot of grief about it, you know, because here he is, you know, staying at the Four Seasons and the rest of us are staying at the Canary. And so, you know, I said to him, Hey, you're staying at the Ritz and we're staying at the shits, you know? (laughs) And, um, and so we had this idea at the end of the show, you know, to, to try to do something about it and, and, and give ourselves a laugh. So, uh, after the show, we went into the theater office and I was with Rada Bede, who was the producer uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, Rod was really gung-ho to do this. And we said to one of the, uh, you know, we didn't want to use our cell phones to call him uh, because we knew he'd recognize those. So we asked if we could use a phone from the theater office. And we explained what we wanted to do. And the woman who was the, the you know, in the office there said, oh, I'll do it. So she calls Peter's cell phone, which we gave her. And she says, uh, hello, Mr. Sagal. Um, you know, this is Marie. I'm calling from the Four Seasons. I'm really sorry to tell you, but we've had uh, a sewage overflow uh, at the hotel. Uh, and it's affected your room. Uh, and I'm afraid, um, you know, you're not going to be able to use your room. Uh, but don't worry, because we've already called and gotten you a room at the Canary. <laughs> So apparently he wraps up and runs, you know, uh, out of the theater and heads back to the Four Seasons uh, to try to save his poor personal belongings. And we're walking down the street to the Canary, doubled over in laughter, all of us, you know, really almost blind from the tears in our eyes. And finally, he calls Rod and he says... You bastards. <laughs> you know? What are you most proud of? Jeez, I think, uh, you know, I think I'm most proud of 
making people feel better, you know? Um, you know, when I think about Car Talk and Wait, Wait, um, you know, and they both serve this purpose where they, you know, what we did would air for an hour on a Saturday. Uh, and I know that millions and millions of people felt better, you know, felt happier, felt, you know, better about their lives and the people around them um, after listening to it. And to me, that's, you know, nothing beats that. That's our benevolent overlord, Doug Berman. On the next and last episode, I talk with the man himself, our show dad, marathoner, victim of many a backstage prank, Peter Sagal. I'm Faith Saley. See you next time. Today, the I see. Today. 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 Today.